Welcome to Saints and Sinners Unplugged. I am Ken Jones, joined by our regular co-hosts, Aldo Leon, uh, David Menendez, and Jose Prado. Uh, over Last week, we began a, a conversation with our good friend and colleague over the years, uh, Dr. Scott R. Scott Clark. I keep getting that wrong. It's not just Scott Clark. It's R. Scott Clark from West. Well, you have to remember the, the pirate name. It, it, yeah, there you go. There you go. I can I can see the parrot now. Uh, but yeah, we have uh, R. Scott Clark from Westminster Seminary, professor of church history and and historical theology. And we began a discussion last week talking about some of the contemporary issues for the seminary and church, etc. But uh, thank you for joining us, Scott. We enjoyed our conversation last week. Thank you for joining us again. It's great to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're you're always uh, uh, worth a good conversation. Now, one of the things that we we did discuss in our last session was some of the the pros and cons of the young, restless, and reformed. And I thought it was an interesting parallel that, as you mentioned. They come in knowing some of the terminology from the, the Reformation, <clears throat> but without a clear – in terms of – and you weren't identifying this as a part of the whole group, but in terms of your students, you are getting an influx of students who come in with less of a commitment to the authority of Scripture. And I find that an interesting parallel uh, from this generation. I think it speaks to us as a church in terms of what our responsibilities ought to be in discipling um, the young people within our church. Uh, they they are, are parroting our failure to be fully committed to the authority of Scripture. Well, I think that's right. Uh, kids uh, mimic what they see and what they hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said last time, I think it's also important to recognize that they've been catechized by the culture, by the educational establishment, to believe that truth claims are necessarily arbitrary Mm. and really uh, uh, attempts to gain power and control uh, disguised as uh, claims about truth. In other words, there really isn't any such thing as truth, there's just power. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so uh, we need uh, uh, all of us, I think, to understand again that the Reformation happened because people were reading the Word of God. Mm. And the Christian faith is grounded in the Word of God, and that uh, Christians have um, have an essential agreement that mm-hmm. come to expression in the ecumenical confessions, the creeds, uh, such as the Apostles' Creed, not actually written by the Apostles, but, mm-hmm. but a very early summary of the faith that can be found in the middle of the second century already, in the 150s. And, um, and we've well, the essence of it. We, we even mentioned that even as the slogans, the, the slogans or the doctrines of grace, five points of Calvinism, however you want to define it, those are the results of church fathers pro, uh, pouring into the scriptures and explaining the scriptures. And those are simply the – that's the outworking of their scriptural convictions. But when you come to the slogan without the labor in the scriptures, then you minimize the basis upon which those slogans are are taken, and then you end up being uh, rallying around the slogan rather than the, the scriptures' convictions, which uh, produce them. Yeah, yeah, it seems sort of arbitrary. Yes, it, it, it isn't arbitrary at all. It's uh, uh, it's it's born out of of scriptures. So in some ways, this gets to. 
uh, an essential Reformation doctrine, and that's the perspicuity of Scripture. That Scripture mm-hmm. is sufficiently clear, essentially mm-hmm. yeah. clear, so that we can know what we need to know for our salvation and for our Christian life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so, over again, on the one hand, you have post modernity, postmodernism, radical right. subjectivism, deconstructionism, <laughs> which says that all texts are essentially unclear and uh, readers are autonomous and authoritative over the text uh, as opposed to what what the writer intended, mm-hmm. right, which turns yeah. everything on its head and, and is essentially a form of literary vandalism. Because, of yeah. course, the people writing these books telling you that you can do with them what you want <laughs> – don't want you to do that to their book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you know, you know they want you, know, you to do that to other people's books. Right. You know, what I noticed so, too, too is that is that um, I think it starts with like the the new perspective. Not starts, but I think it's more popular the new perspective guys. And the idea is like we have to get behind the text to get to the text. So yeah. in order in order us in order for us to understand Paul, we got to understand. You know, second second temple Judaism, and even right. like now, it's like I feel like what I hear guys talking like in my circles of of age is like, well, we got to understand like the black narrative to understand yeah. the black theology, and the, and so it's almost like there there is like a a underarching authoritative like thing outside of scripture that kind of like is this over over contextualization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, we certainly need to pay attention to the original context in which documents were written, including Scripture. Mm-hmm. We need to pay attention to the original context in which uh, the Scriptures were received. In other words, the Apostle Paul was someplace when he wrote to the Church of Corinth, and we need to know about what was happening in Corinth. And so that's just basic hermeneutics, uh, you know, basic uh, uh, interpretation of the text. Uh, those things have to be done. But to say, for example, that uh, we can't really understand a text until we understand the experience, Mm -hmm. as interpreted by somebody, of all of the different recipients of Scripture uh, outside of the canonical period, uh, uh, and those who who aren't expert in in the experience, for example, in the black experience, uh, as interpreted by somebody, Mm -hmm. right? If we're not if we're not expert in that, and therefore we're not really able to understand scripture, well, implied in that is that the recipient makes the text, mm. that the reader makes yeah. the text, and that's simply not true. Or that uh, the, the text has, or text. or that the text has no bearing in this area for this group of individuals because it doesn't include their context. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's right. And, yeah. And, and of course, that would mean that the. Scripture has no bearing to me in San Diego County, <laughs> right. Escondido, because, yeah. and, it goes back. Know, and, and of course, that's silly because it was intended to be heard and, and sure. read and believed by uh, people everywhere, uh, all times and all places, every uh, you know tribe, tongue, and, and nation, according to the Revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it goes back to I think what you were saying earlier about about having a good good view of creation, like. In creation, we understand a lot of basic things about God's word. Like God's word is not something just that we study and we use, but it's something that creates reality. Like God's word <laughs> precedes reality; it creates reality. It's not just something that we apply right. and we use. The word of His power. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, the word of and God it, creates it, reality. It's transcultural, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. The, yeah. the the word of God speaks to. And it was written in the midst of multiple cultures. Yes. Uh, there are at least uh, three different languages in Scripture, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. 
uh, and it was composed over a long period of time, particularly in the Old Testament. Obviously, the New Testament was composed in a very short period of time, relatively short period of time. Uh, but it, it was intended to be received by, heard by, and to speak to multiple uh, cultures, language groups, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And it was intended to go to all the nations of the earth. Um, and so we can't use our cultural experience, whatever it may be, right. to, to leverage Scripture and to limit what it can do. It's the Word of God. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, Scott, as a historian, uh, one of the things that you've been helpful with over the years, and I think um, uh, Daryl Hart was also helpful in this regard, and that is revisiting the impact of the First Great Awakening. And I say that because there's a tendency for American Christians to just look at the theology of the pilgrims, et cetera, and think that we and, – and they look at their European roots as their, their Calvinistic European roots and assume that this is just a – the church in America is a continuation of the church in Europe as, as, as brought here by the pilgrims. And therefore, we talk about the influence of the First Great Awakening, which was, quote-unquote, good because it included the Calvinistic preaching of Jonathan Edwards and William uh, Gilbert Tennant, etc. And then the Second Great Awakening as bad because you have uh, Finney and his bad theology. But uh, Daryl Hart, and later I, you know, I tracked with you on this, that you guys caused us to re-examine the First Great Awakening demonstrating that it wasn't as good, perhaps, as people thought it was, even though you had um, Whitfield and others. But there were some problems that were really created by the first Great Awakening that leads into the second Great Awakening. It was, it was a little sleepy. <laughs> the first Great Awakening had a little sleepiness No, it, it. It, was, it was very much awakening, but it, it kind of... Theologically sleepy. It, it created this pietism that kind of permeates the evangelical church even into our contemporary contemporary moment. So would you kind of walk us through that? Sure. Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've done this work, so I, I would refer the reader to the, the book and then in the book to the footnotes um, where I'm really, as you suggested, just harvesting the, the work of other people. Um, I'm, I'm not a scholar of the First Great Awakening. I, I did a fair bit of work to try to articulate to the reader who, at that point, again, this book is more than 10 years old now, um, who at that point... But you're still young. With, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who may not have been uh, familiar with some of the work that's uh, been done, modern work that's been done, uh, academic work, on, on the First Great Awakening. And, and what I was trying to do was to, uh, in a sense, give some context to, for example, the, what we now know as the Young Restless and Reformed Movement, the, the New Calvinist Movement, many of whom are deeply influenced by Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I have a T-shirt, at least I used to. One of my students gave me a T-shirt that says, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy. <laughs> and and uh, so... You know, Edwards is kind of the patron saint of the Young Restless and Reform Movement. So if you read, I remember reading a book on humility by C.J. Mahaney, which was 
basically a restatement of, I think it was Mahaney, mm-hmm. a restatement yeah, it was, of it was uh, Edwards. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, if you know Edwards and you read John Piper, you'll, you'll see the influence of Edwards on Piper and, and so forth. So um, you know, he's a massive influence. And, of course, he's probably America's most famous and, and gr- arguably greatest uh, theologian in, in some sense. Not best, I didn't say best, but mm-hmm. sign- historically significant um, theologian um, in, in some senses because he was the, the first. And... Uh, and what I tried to argue is that uh, there are reasons to think that the line that people have drawn, for example, I argued a little bit with Ian Murray, who wants to draw a line between the First and Second uh, Great Awakening along the lines that, that you suggested. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, First Great Awakening good because of uh, Calvinism and the emphasis on divine sovereignty and, and so forth, and the Second Great Awakening not so good because it, it came to be dominated by um, Arminianism and uh, Wesley, uh, Wesley and uh, even evangelical Wesleyanism or evangelical Arminianism. So, uh, uh, and and obviously Charles Finney, who was a rank Pelagian, right? Uh, not even not even semi. <laughs> he was full blown. No, that's right. Not, uh, Finney was a, a full blown, <laughs> unmodified, rationalistic Pelagian. He was a heretic as judged by the ecumenical creed. Again, this is not some nasty reformed guy you know, condemning to hell everybody with whom he disagrees. No, there are certain basic boundaries that every Christian teacher has to meet. And yep. one of them is you can't be a Pelagian. The, the Council of Ephesus in 431 have <laughs> yeah. condemned Pelagianism as a heresy against the holy Christian ecumenical Catholic faith. By the way, and, Scott, uh, so just, just a moment there. I, I got to insert this. One of our early editions of, of Modern Reformation magazine, we got a lot of flack for this because we listed a group of evangelicals, contemporary evangelicals, who cited Charles Finney as their theological hero. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and even, to, even today, if you, if, whenever I say that Finney was a heretic, Almost invariably, somebody will email me or write a comment on the blog or something and say, well, you're wrong because, and, and, and on we go. Yeah. So yeah, he's still a hero for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I'm just not persuaded that distinction really works, and I'm not persuaded that, that even Ian Murray consistently makes that distinction, because when push comes to shove, if you, and he's, he says this in the book, you know, there are uh, he would rather have, and I remember hearing him give the lectures that became the book. I, I happened to be in Wheaton for a couple of years teaching, and uh, he, he came to town and gave uh, a couple of lectures for a couple of evenings uh, on these topics. And I remember somebody asking him, well, you know, uh, Dr. Murray, what, what about the Second Great Awakening? And um, you know, do you think it was a mistake? And he said, well, no, I'm, I'm glad that it happened. And uh, you read the book, he does cite some folks in, in the Second Great Awakening when we appreciate it. So what does he appreciate about them? Well, they had the right quality of religious experience. And, yeah. and ultimately, uh, that's the point of contact between the two mm. uh, episodes. The first uh, Great Awakening, or Sterile Hart calls them the first pretty good awakening, and the second <laughs> pretty good awakening. Um, and, I, he, and I don't think that's original with him. I, I, he's, he has said in the past, from whom he heard that, and I don't remember who it was. But mm-hmm. at any rate, not, I don't think it's original with either of us. Uh, uh, what unites them is this desire to have an unmediated, so strictly immediate, experience of the risen Christ. 
And, and so that, so one of the things that I focused on in, in that part of the book is a discussion of Edward's uh, book on uh, religious affections. Mm-hmm. So where it, it seems to me the older Reformed tradition prior to Edward's, and, and people have pointed to me and said, well, look, uh, John Owen talks about affections. Yes, he does. But he does not talk about affections the way Edwards does. Um, yeah. Owen isn't setting up a method, in a sense, a kind of machine, whereby mm-hmm. we can be assured, more or less, of having the right kind of religious experience. And that's what uh, Edwards did in religious affections. And, uh, and that process gave us the uh, Edwardsian movement, which is a broad movement with, with at least two facets— uh, the New Haven theology is directly organically related to Edwards, mm-hmm. and um, and there are you know, besides you know his uh, his emphasis on uh, the right quality of religious affections, there, there are other problems with Edwards. And again, yeah. send your cards and letters to Charles Hodge because Hodge called him a pantheist. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, I was, was going to bring right? that up. And that's a very serious problem in, in anybody's uh, theology. Yeah. And then Thomas Schaefer, back in, I think, 1951, published an essay, which has often been ignored or overlooked, uh, in which he raised very serious questions about uh, Edwards' doctrine of justification. Yep. Um, and yeah. I think the best that anyone can say about Edwards is that his doctrine of justification is ambiguous. And uh, multiple authors, Bob Godfrey among them, have on the basis of some recently, fairly recently published uh, bits of Edwards, uh, fragments and, and the treatises and things, have raised serious questions about the orthodoxy of Edwards' doctrine of justification. Of course, there's a pile of literature on the other side trying to defend his, his orthodoxy on justification. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no question about uh, John Calvin's doctrine of justification or Martin Luther's Protestant doctrine of justification. Um, you know, as I've often said, my children could articulate the doctrine of justification when they were pretty young. Mm-hmm. There's no need for a teacher to be ambiguous about the doctrine of justification. And the fact that there's doubt, serious doubt, and ambiguity about that is a very bad thing because yes. um, you know, this is, as Calvin said, the doctrine of justification is the axis, or uh, Steve Law said yesterday, the hub around which the whole Christian faith turns. So to get that wrong, you know, mm. is, is to put uh, many things in jeopardy. Uh, J.H. Alstead, it wasn't Luther who said this, although he may probably paraphrase Luther, but the Reformed theologian J.H. Alstead said that the doctrine of justification is the article of the standing or falling of the Church. Yeah. So to the degree that it's ambiguous in Edwards, to that degree he, he put, in a sense, um, the, the Church in America... On a, on a slippery footing. So there are a lot of reasons why uh, all of us, and, and uh, especially the, the uh, sort of neo-Edwardsian, young, restless, and reformed folks, should be uh, cautious about Edwards and, and ought to be looking behind Edwards to the mm-hmm. older reformed theologians, and particularly to the, again, the ecclesiastical documents, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Standards, the Savoy, and so forth. You want to look at those things for the ecclesiastical articulations of these truths, mm. and not necessarily to particular famous theologians, and in this case, Edwards, who may or may not have gotten them right. Yeah. Mm. I remember reading um, a lot of Edwards for a long time, and it seemed like his view of union with Christ was more, more devotional, less forensic. 
um, more ontological and, and less uh, mm. de- declarative. And, and, and so it's almost like union with Christ is entering into his interests, his concerns. And, yeah. and, and he, he, he definitely, I think it's, it's, everything is related because he's, he's, he's like, a, he, I guess he's from the Calvinist tradition, but he's, he, he's not articulating those kind of like federal categories. Right. You know, those covenantal categories. So therefore, like, all of a sudden you begin to muddle things, like, in a justification conversation. Your doctrine of God is weird. It's, like, kind of like everything everything is God in the world in some kind of, I don't know, muddled sense. And so you kind of diminish that categorical distinction between the the doctrine of God and, and, and the doctrine of man. And therefore, you have this weird view of how you relate to God in unmediated ways. And so I feel like with Edwards, you have the you have the cracks uh, in theology that, that lead to like craters in the mm. in the coming. And honestly, like all of all the guys that like directly uh, identify with his school, they became like straight out heretics. Like like a few generations later, like mm. like there's a uh, like the, it was like a Dwight uh, Dwight. Um, um. Who was his his son in law? Uh, not Dwight Moody. Uh, who was this? Uh, I can't. <laughs> Edward Dwight. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Timoth- Timothy Dwight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Timothy Basically. Dwight. Yeah. So like Edwards would say things like, "We don't worship God because of what He does for us, but because of who He is in Himself, apart from what He does." Um, yeah, the, the disinterested benevolence. Yeah, yeah, and, and so too. and so then his his students take that to the level of like unless you're willing to be damned for the glory of god yeah. you can't really trust him mm. savingly and, and you know what like that yeah that that sounds like the confused pietism of of the new calvinists right. it is uh it is god-centered uh without this kind of like mediator mm. this gracious inter you know go between between us and and it's it's we we go to church but like we almost like to banish the church like as, as, as a lot of like the the Great Awakening dudes, it was like, look, you're in church, but it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. What matters is you have this like cataclysmic crisis conversion event that is very subjective, and that those cracks they just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and I think when you I'll, I'll, that kind of smells like a lot of like the the reformed whatever you want to say reformedish kind of talk in our in our in our day and and but i do think that there was a continuation uh even the new light controversy that comes in the immediate aftermath of the first great awakening that's what kind of leads to the whole campfire uh yeah you know the whole campfire yeah. meeting that uh, the the cane ridge thing that led to um you know the second great awakening the sparks of the second great awakening that's that's really a continuation of that, and then continuing from that, uh, the offshoot of that second great awakening under the poor preaching of, of and, and theology of Charles Finney. That's where you get the growth of Pentecostalism, mm-hmm. and from the growth of Pentecostalism, you get the watered down version of the charismatic movement that opens up the early twentieth century. Yeah, well, yeah. that's right. I mean, so this is this is why I've been saying, listen. Uh, we're grateful for aspects of the new Calvinist movement, but uh, we uh, please take a close and careful look at old Calvinism. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because uh, there's another way to think about this, another way to think about the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's and there, there's another way of thinking about Christian nurture. 
And and even at the time of uh, the First Great Awakening, there were alternatives. There's a Scots-Irish preacher, pastor, theologian named, named John Thompson, hmm. who um, hasn't gotten very much attention, uh, but who offered an alternative. He and others like him said, listen, we have questions about all of this excitement and all of this enthusiasm because this isn't really part of our tradition. Um, mm. This isn't how we've understood Scripture. This isn't how we think God uh, ordinarily works. We're not saying that he's not able to do these things, mm-hmm. and we're not saying that nothing good has come out of them, but we have questions. And, and just by virtue of asking questions, uh, Tennant and Edwards himself at Whitfield, they all said, listen, if you doubt that this is a work of the Spirit of God, that just goes to show that you're unregenerate. Uh, so they yeah. set up a test. You know, yeah. Either agree with us, or, yeah. or we'll mm. condemn you as, as yeah. unregenerate. And, he, and again, that sort of thing uh, continues even yeah. even today. right? Here. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think what I tried to do in the book was to offer an alternative. And the alternative is simply known as the ordinary means of grace. Yes. And what we mean by the ordinary means of grace is that the way God has ordained to work and the way he usually works, so we're using the word ordinary in two senses at the same time, uh, is to say that uh, God has established the preaching of the law and the preaching of the gospel. So Pastor Ken uh, gets up in his pulpit uh, week by week, right? And uh, Al and David and Jose, and they, they're they're announcing the, the law. This is what God demands of human beings. And uh, then they're announcing the gospel. This is what God has done for his people. Mm-hmm. Amen, Scott. And, <laughs> right? And, and you do that week by week, and God uses that uh, mysteriously. The Holy Spirit uses that to mm. convict people, to bring them to new life and true faith, yeah. and to um, to edify them, to grow them. And, uh, and he, he feeds uses, them uh, from his table. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? He uses the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. He uses Christian instruction. He uses prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the ordinary things that we do. And the Christian life isn't a series of uh, mountaintop experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. Right? It, it, as I say, the Christian life is more like Nebraska. And it is Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, it's it, it's interesting because you, you talk about the ordinary means of grace, and I think one of the reasons that your work and Daryl's work got my attention is because as you read through the first great awakening, it sets the stage for the extra non-church event. So the revival yeah. became yeah. an event. And it was the thing. It became the norm for most people. Exactly. That's the point. And and what's interesting is that on this end of history, even with uh, not just young, restless, and reformed, but we're doing a, a conference that we've we've been promoting. But but conferences and parachurch organizations became the tail that wagged the dog of the church. And they became yeah, sure. the goal. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, how many times have people come to us and said? You know, I was at such and such a, a, a conference, and we did this, and we did that, and we had this experience, and why can't we do that at church? Yes, yeah. exactly. Uh, uh, I feel like... So that, you know, that's like saying, you know, uh, um, I went to a $100 a plate French restaurant, <laughs> right? And then coming back to your, your wife and saying, no, why can't you do that? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think the, pro- the problem, too, is that w- w- with Edwards, you have, like, the... I think you had you had towering figures before, but it seemed like they were very like confessionally grounded. But he becomes kind of like a, a a personality unto himself. And what what I notice now is that we've we've I think in the new Calvinist 
world we've replaced confessions with massive personalities. Yeah. So whatever I the ma- a great point. Yeah. Whatever the great point. Whatever the massive personality confesses, we confess. Mm. Um, and the it, thing of I've, I've had yeah, yeah. I've had that experience right. I, I was just, you know so and so said on the radio today right yeah. not the word of God is confessed by yep. the congregational yeah. churches or the reformed yeah. churches. Uh, what have you? It's yeah. it's this personality says, and that yeah. personality says, and it's, mm-hmm. it really, it, you know. And I think you're right. Um, you know, as I read the Reformed and, and you know, Lutheran writers in the 16th century and the Reformed writers in the 17th century, um, certainly there were significant uh, figures, but there was not, I don't think, the same kind of cultivation of personality. And and one of the things that signaled this to me was. Um, Harry Stout's work on George Whitfield, mm-hmm. and I understand that that for some it, it, that's a controversial book, but I found it very helpful because I thought he documented very well the various ways in which Whitfield deliberately created controversy in order to stir up excitement to draw mm-hmm. a crowd so that he could preach to them. I, I, yeah, wow. God the Holy Spirit used that preaching, and, sure. um, and we're gr- we're grateful for that, um, and, and we honor that. And by that the way, also the case. Horton, he, Horton has made the case. Horton has made the case that that Whitfield is the first American celebrity. Well, yeah, yeah that's Harry Stout's argument. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, that he that, that Whitfield is you know, he's the first religious rock star in America, and more in that sense than Edwards. I mean, Edwards was actually you know a kind of a nerdy, um, you know, low, awkward, low key. Mm-hmm sort of guy in some respects, you know. Uh, but Edward he studied 13 a hours a day. <laughs> Pardon? He studied 13 hours a day. Yeah, exactly. What so, a freak, man. Uh, you know, Whitfield is a, a popular, accessible, winsome, persuasive guy who could, uh, you know, the legend is, make people cry by saying Mesopotamia. So, um, yeah. You know, that's not Edwards. Um and, and, you know, Tennant and, and all the rest of them, they, they become, uh, in a sense, bigger-than-life personalities. So, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the emphasis on personality in contemporary evangelicalism and in contemporary, you know, uh, new Calvinism is uh, yeah. is a real issue. And we're seeing this now with various major founding figures in the movement mm. um, uh, who've been forced out of ministry, been discredited, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you guys want me to name names, but... but uh, well, we don't um, care. You say go, and I'll, I'll tell you who I'm thinking about. No, no, I don't care. I go, mean, go, go for it. If it's appropriate to the conversation. Well, I mean, look, look at Mark Driscoll, yeah. who uh, abused people in the churches in Seattle and uh, was... You know, they forced them to shut down those churches and reorganize, damaged a lot of people, mm. right? hurt the sheep, and now where is he in Scottsdale setting up shop and, and uh, hanging out with the Charismatics now, showing up on the cover of Charisma magazine, wow. and sort of rebranding himself. Yeah, uh, and he, James McDonald yeah. at Harvest Bible I know. Yeah. Chapel, yeah. I think it is, um, one of the founding members, again, of the whole yeah. movement. Yeah. Um, and now, I guess, you know, involved in financial scandals, um, abuse of the sheep, and um, resigned in disgrace, is, uh, according to journalist Julie Royce, preparing a comeback. Mm. Uh, and uh, we, we could go on. And, uh, yeah. uh, Josh Harris, of course, very um, famously, notoriously, um, 
decided to go to seminary after being a pastor, after uh, convincing you know, millions of people about how they ought to conduct their their uh, their lives, and uh, that then goes to seminary, and then uh, now is uh, getting divorced, and now has apostatized publicly from uh, from Christianity. So, we could go on. Would you say, Scott? Uh, also, maybe another point that there's also there's been a lack of a, of a Christ centrality in our approach to uh, reform theology. You know, on the one hand, we have an, we have an epistemology of pragmatism, perhaps an experience experience. On the other hand, an epistemology of rationalism, uh, and that also affects our reform, um, you know, movement in a way. But I think there's also lacking an epistemology of the cross. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, I wouldn't attribute it to Reformed theology, but there are people who, you know, in the Young Russells and Reformed movement and others, um, who don't really grasp some of the basic foundational truths, the Reformation truths, that lie behind, underneath uh, Reformed theology. And, and for example, the theology of the cross is, is among them. Yeah. Uh, that, um, you know, and, uh, and all that implies, you know, that. I'm just talking yesterday with Carl Truman, who's on campus this week, and we were discussing this very thing. The theology of the cross is a, when Luther talks about the, the and he, Carl made a great point. Luther, in, in, at the um, Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, said, the theologian of the right. of glory mm. says yeah. X, mm-hmm. and the theologian of the cross mm. says Y. Yeah. Right. And the theologian of glory Yes. elevates the human intellect over the Word of God, yep. thinks mm. that he can present himself to God on the basis of his performance. It captures and, everyone, yeah. And thinks that he's going to um, go from conquest to conquest. And there's a kind of implied um, triumphalism. And the yeah. theology of the cross yeah. starts with the gospel as revealed in the Word of God, right? Um, right? And it doesn't seek to present oneself to one doesn't present himself to God on the basis of his performance mm-hmm. and uh, one seeks as a consequence of all this to take up his cross and to follow Jesus and the and, uh, you know, foxes have holes birds have nests the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and and that's the pattern of, of our Christian life dying to mm-hmm. sin and, and living to Christ Amen. I, I got this 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 thought in my head before, I just want to throw it there and we can, we can, you can close mm-hmm. this out but just how 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 the covenantal perspective uh, in in reformed theology is so vital to like so many things and so like for example like if you have the doctrines of grace without the covenantal narrative what's the covenantal narrative it's it's this god god reveals himself through historic acts in history that culminate in Christ's historic acts like that's how god relates to it he 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 embraces he condescends in history through his actions in history, and that's always it leads us to Christ. Um, and so that means that his history is very important. Um, so if 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 Reformed theology doesn't have this 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 overarching redemptive historical narrative, for, you know, formulated and organized in covenants, then all of a sudden history just generally doesn't matter. So the generations before us don't matter. They're how they confessed in history doesn't matter. So I feel like. When you have doctrines of grace without a historical narrative known as covenant theology that, that, that binds it together, history becomes less important. The historical becomes less important. Um, basic, normal, creaturely things become less important. 
And it's just these these kind of like abstract categories that just float around. Mm. You know, that makes sense. Amen. I <laughs> I could not have said it better. I I, I agree with you one hundred percent. Yeah, and 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 that's and, and so I think confessionalism is not just arbitrary. Like they, these, I think it has it has a a bread trail to how you do theology, right? You know, and that's one of the things that like I don't know, just really helped me. Uh, to me, like confessional is not it's it's my way of articulating what it means to flush out Christ centeredness. Not just I pick these guys. I, people t- people tell me because like yeah, yeah, you know, like we're. I'm a second generation Hispanic. They're like, oh, you, you know, you just you just pick white guy theology in the 1600s, uh, and you know, well, like, no, I I I followed a Christocentric bread trail that led me to these categories and these boundaries. Yeah. Um, and if it happened to be written by white guys, I don't I don't care. You know, like I was telling this one guy, <laughs> I was having this conversation on the internet uh, about you know how re- reformed theology is white. Um, and I was like, dude, Trinitarian theology of the first four centuries is not African because it was done by Africans. <laughs> yeah. It so happens yeah, that a lot of those right. guys were African. Yes. And I told yeah. him, I was like, yeah. I, will not, I, I, I will not read a book because it's written by a Hispanic. I will read a book because of the title and the table of contents that makes Christocentric sense. And so, I don't know. No, like a, like a rat like a rat show. No, it's, it's – that's, that's the um, – I think that's the, the beauty – of these age-old confessions and creeds that we are all prone to wander, as the psalm, as the psalm, hymn says, and the creeds bring us back to the faith once delivered to all of the saints. And so, um, when any time you find people that are just gravitate to the slogans or the stars, they're gonna and they miss the substance. It, it doesn't take long to discover it, and I think. This is where discipleship in the context of the local church is so important to yeah. be grounded in something more than a slogan, grounded in something more than a feel. Your mission, vision, and values are your, yeah. on your website. <laughs> Scott, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, we could go on and on, which means we're going to have to have you back. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> I'd be happy to do it. It's great to talk with you guys. Very, Very encouraging. Thank you very much. All right. Well, listen, thank you again for joining us here at Saints and Sinners Unplugged. We look forward to being with you next week at the same time.